I was going to mention something to you. So I have this ask on occasion because I think it's a question that I would ask had I not uh, figured it out you know, years ago. But like when we read the Apostles' Creed, if you're not used to it in your tradition, uh, one thing that really kind of shocks you is we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Uh, that's something for some people, well, that's like, what? Hold on a second. Is this a Catholic church? Well, if you go to your dictionary and you type in Catholic, you will see things like universal and a lot of other definitions. It's that, that term is a term of just saying we believe in the church from the, from the earliest church all the way to the people that will believe in the future. You know, it, it's a way of, it's an all-encompassing way of saying we believe in the universality of the church throughout the ages and throughout all of the world. And so that's it, just a way of saying that. It's traditionally the way that it's been said, and so I just wanted you to know that. I think that's helpful to know uh, because it is not the we believe in the Roman Catholic Church. It's we believe in the universal church. And you could say, why don't you change that? Well, sometimes you read it in the way that's been read for hundreds of years because that's the way it's been read for hundreds of years. So, okay. All right, so we are in Psalm, in the Psalms, and we are studying individual Psalms, and we are looking at Psalm 76 today. Um, but sometimes these Psalms are kind of set together, and, and you may even say, as I do sometimes, wait, hold on, didn't we just read about this? You know, and so you're going to have those moments like that. Psalm 74 and 75 are tied together. Psalm 74, there was this plea, and he pleads for God to rise up and defend his own cause, God's own cause, against uh, the wicked of the earth. In Psalm 75, there is this anticipation, this uh, like it was a psalm of faith where you're saying like, God, you're going to do that. You are going to address all the problems and all the troubles and all the wickedness and evil of the world, you're going to address it, uh, you're, you're going to fight against uh, all of your enemies, and uh, your people, you know, can trust that. And so they're, they're kind of, it's an anticipation of that. Psalm 76 is one of those psalms where you say, judgment's already come. It is recounting God's deliverance. So one is, God, stand up and do something. The other one is, we believe you will. And the next one is, You've done it. You know, that's kind of the way. We can't believe it. I mean, they were there. They, they were frightening us, and you stopped them in their tracks. That's kind of how you would see it. Now, what is it about? Well, in your Bible, it, it, you, you kind of would read about it. You say, well, hold on. I don't know exactly what story the psalmist is recounting but if you went to the Septuagint, which is a Greek uh, a translation of the Old Testament, there's an added inscription in this psalm that says, uh, basically, it's written on the occasion of the victory of God against Sennacherib and the Assyrians when Hezekiah prayed. And you can read all about that, where he prays, God deliver us. The Assyrians, 200,000 strong, have wrapped around them and are like thirsty for blood, and God like stops them. That's 
where this psalm flows from. So some of you might say, I'm not into judgment. And I would say, hold on just a second. If you woke up last night to your house, lights beaming in, and some foreign army was wrapped around, you know, let's say even a hundred strong around your house, and they are thirsty for you and your family's blood, you wouldn't be crying out to God? I mean, would you? Would you say, God, like, we love you. You promised to be with us. Defend us now. We can't stand against this enemy. You would say to yourself, Lord, please do justly in this moment and defend your cause. And I think you understand that if you are in, let's say you are a Christian today, meeting in a house church across the world somewhere where people hate Christianity, and you felt as if the enemy was starting to close in, you would be begging God, oh God, defend us, protect us, watch over us. So I think it's important to say, if you're kind of one of those people that maybe you don't think about the judgment thing, but you do love mercy, you understand in order for God to show mercy, for instance, in this case, he will have to also stay the hand of the wicked. That's just... That just makes good common sense, right? That just We need to understand that. So, Psalm 76, we see that God has come in deliverance of His people when they were facing a foe that was absolutely beyond compare. Now, Ligon Duncan speaks of this psalm, and he kind of lays it out this way. It, where it's natural kind of progression. You look at uh, different Bibles, you'll see it broken up in this way. But we're not going to approach it just exactly that way. And, and I think... Again, just want to kind of see it. Part 1, verses 1 through 3, speak of them knowing God. The people of God know God. That, that's where it starts. And what happens here is they know God in a saving way. Uh, you know, the world might know of God, but they actually know God. And so there's this unique thing of, they know God. They know His name. They know Him intimately. He has introduced Himself to them. That's kind of the picture. They know God. And they know Him through His ordinances in the sense of this, that He has established His worship with His people. They know Him. Uh, we, we, we could say, I know His name. I've got His Word. And I know the, the structure in which we are to gather and when we do that, that's another thing you say, we know him. They knew him by his deliverances. That's another thing that you see. And so I think it's important that you understand that these people, verse 1 to 3, know God. Uh, the second part, verse 4 and 5, is they are confident that God will deliver because they know his character and power. And they know that doesn't change. That, that's the other thing. They know who he, it's like they know his name, he's introduced himself to them and come in and he, dwelling with them. And then they know, like we know who his character and his power. I mean, it's on display everywhere, which is a really powerful thing. Ver, and then you go to part three, verse seven through nine. Because God's people know God, we know that he will judge. Now, 
What does that mean? Again, we kind of sometimes think of judgment, we think of like judging the wicked. Uh, you know, it's like when, when we talk about judging around our house, just uh, in, in, we used to do this a lot because we, uh, there was a place we went to in old Washington and you could go sit in the judge's seat, you know, and we would like hit the gavel kind of saying guilty. But, but the reality is, is when you're thinking about judgment, it's not just that you're pronouncing someone guilty, but also that that same pronouncement may deliver someone else. And that's what you see in the Bible. God is judging the wicked and preserving the righteous. That's the way it would be presented. So they know God and they know he will make judgments. He will vindicate his people and condemn the wicked. Part 4, verse 10 to 12. We see God's sovereignty expressed even against the backdrop of these angry men. The wrath of men will be used to praise God. And so... That's just helpful for us. You just want to frame out a structure for it. You can see that in Psalm 76, and it's on display. Remember, it's, the backdrop is 200,000 Assyrians coming after uh, 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 the people of God, and they, their king cries out to God, and God delivers them. He shows mercy to his people, and he judges their enemies. That is what is on display and you need to see that because when we celebrate God's judgment on the wicked we are also celebrating the vindication of the righteous very 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 important for us so there's a number of truths again I I think that one of the things that Duncan uh, speaks of are like these truths that we can see and so we're going to point them out and move along through uh, these passages not necessarily by an outline but more just noticing these truths so let's start in verse one in judah god is known his name is great in israel now what does that mean god has made himself known now okay this is really when i when i want to share the gospel with somebody so often i'll go to the first chapter of romans and this is what i'll say you know, God has made himself known in the world that you live in. Everybody sees the evidence of God everywhere you go. God is the creator of this universe. And just like somebody would look at this building and say, there must be a builder. They look at creation, and in their hearts they say, there must be a creator. That kind of revelation is great. But that kind of revelation is not the revelation we speak of here. When he says that God is known with his people, it's not just in creation or in their conscience, but he has spoken to these people. He is not left them to imagine God into being whoever they want him to be. Exodus chapter 6 says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, He is a speaking God. And he speaks in the language that Moses would have understood. He speaks to him that he might know. And he said to him, as he had spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am the Lord. And by my name, the Lord, I 
made myself known. That, that's kind of the idea. Um, I'm sorry, let me just read this, though, because I want to read it in context. He made himself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not by the specific name that he's going to speak of here in the same way. I just want you to kind of think about it just for a moment. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this is the idea of this covenant name. He said, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land with which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery uh, to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment i will take you to be my people and i will be your god and you shall know that i am the lord your god who has brought you out uh, uh, from under the burdens of the egyptians now here's the thing it's not that the name this covenant name that god speaks of here had never been on display before but in a very unique way, he is going to, in, in what is going to happen here, he is going to reveal himself in a way that, like, will shock the world. I mean, it, it is an amazing, shocking thing that takes place in the Exodus. Actually, it is the event that they keep pushing back to. Something with Job, you kind of have this idea, too, where he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He's saying, like, I experienced the fullness of your name. And so when we're saying, hey, the world can see God exist, that's not what we're speaking of here. This is a personal God who has purposed a relationship with his people. He has redeemed them, and he has revealed himself to them. Now, in your life of studying the Word, I think there's probably been times or moments where God has helped you see Him, for most of you here likely, and understand who He is and grasp the wonders of, of the person and work of His Son and all of those things. And it may be even that there are moments where God, even maybe in the last few weeks, has just opened up afresh to you uh, a knowledge of him that is so shocking and we want to pray for that and we encourage you in that because you need to know that that God has revealed himself to his people and he continues to do so now we keep moving in this psalm and the second truth is um, he makes himself known through the way in which the, the worship of God his ordinances and these great deliverances and so you see him speak in verse 2 his abode has been established in Salem, which is short for Jerusalem. His dwelling place in Zion, which is the hilltop, the mountain of the Lord there. And so you see him doing that. He makes himself known in worship. Just a couple of weeks ago, the guy was struggling with, with God and some of the things of God until he entered into the sanctuary. And when he went and met with God there, where God dwelt among the people, it transformed his life. And I would just say to you, and we were I was talking to someone about this this last week, 
where the gap when the church gathers when two or three are gathered together in my name there i am the church is the temple of god not not the building the people the people gather together the temple of god gathering together when they do that they understand things about him they grasp him and experience him and then you see his deliverances what happens is he speaks of this there he broke the flashing arrows the shields the sword the weapon of war all of those things when you stop and say god is the god who has delivered us and some of you may say i know this on a personal level in your life where god has delivered you from very dark circumstances. Those circumstances could be enemies that were very visible. They could be enemies in your head. They could be struggles that you faced with all kinds of things. There are so many struggles that we could have both internally and externally where we see His deliverances. And also, of course, we run back to the cross and say, there He defeated all of our enemies. I know him as deliverer. So you say, we, we want to say, I know him because he has told me who he is through his name. I know him through the, the gathering together in worship, and I know him through his deliverances. The third truth you see is that whoever comes to fight against God, they are no match for him. Look at verses four through six. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse laid stunned. What's he saying? He is saying, you know that army of 200,000 that surrounded the people of God? Like when God rebuked them. Some of you sometimes say, well, like, I'd love to be in God's army. Really? What does that mean to you? It means like you're going to fight with weapons of, of war like that man makes. And God says, I spoke. And the enemy, I mean, they basically said with his speech, the enemy lost all ability to fight against us. With one word. With the same way in the word that when he spoke the world into existence, he has spoken and they are stopped, you know, by his word. You could look that up in Isaiah 37. You could look it up uh, and, and read about those things. But it's important to understand there that God said, Concerning that king who was coming to attack them, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there. Over and over, God delivers his people and the enemies may, you can write this down, the enemies that you have faced in your life, the darkest moments of your life, those enemies may frighten you. I mean, they, they may legitimately frighten you, but they don't frighten him. There is a 
writer, songwriter, Ross King. And I, I think I've sent this out to some of you. He wrote an album called Unfinished not too long ago after coming out of a long period of depression. Well, he'd actually kind of written, I think, some of the songs, but like they produced them maybe post that. And he says, I almost want to like chant it like he does in the song, so hopefully I'll be able to read it. Let's see. Because uh, I get so overcome with anxiety, there's an enemy living inside of me. Like a mocker yelling out lies to me, and I don't feel brave, but I don't have to be. Because I walk through the valley of shadows, and it scared me half to death. But you're with me everywhere I go, so I don't have to give up yet. My fears would surely kill me if I didn't know the truth. That the things that I am afraid of are afraid of you. Is that not crazy? I mean, the things that I'm afraid of are afraid of you. Like, that, that's the thing. You fear you're going to miss out in life. People are screaming that out to you. In your head, there's all these dark things. This, this, this thing that keeps drawing you to itself and like trying to pull you out to run into rebellion against God or that makes you want to go hide in a hole. Those things that make you most afraid are afraid of Him. In one word. One word. One word from Him is enough. He does not have to leave His throne in heaven to deal with those enemies. Over and over, God delivers. Fourth, God will judge the world and he should be revered. I think that's just important for you to note. Like in verse 7 through 8a, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once you are, your anger is roused from the heavens, you uttered judgment. This is kind of the negative part of judgment. The negative part is God will judge the wicked. He will do it. His anger will be roused. We've been reading about that. The cup of God's wrath will be filled to the brim. And when He pours it out, it will come out and it will execute judgment. And it will be a just judgment. Fifth, God's judgment will be the salvation for His people. Chapter, I mean, I'm sorry, verse 8 through 9, or 8b, you might say. The earth feared and was still when God rose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. So what is he saying? When God executes judgment, he is on one hand judging the wicked, on the other hand restoring the righteous, the humble, the, the brokenhearted. He is lifting up their head. He is slapping down the wicked and raising up the head of His people to save the humble, those who are contrite in spirit, broken in spirit, who are sur- just submitted to the Lord and trusting Him. This is what's kind of crazy is when the earth, it's kind of like when the wicked see it, they're going to be in such shock because they think they are so powerful. That's kind of the picture. You can imagine, again, 200,000 circling 
chanting, laughing, and they're thinking they're going to defeat them. And all of a sudden, when God arose to establish judgment, they are just like left there with their mouths open and all of their swords and everything. You can see them all falling to the ground with one shocking word. So I think it's just important that we understand that. Verse 10. Surely the wrath of men shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will not. I mean, you will put on like a belt. So what is he saying? He's saying. Even though those people do not love God, even though the enemies in my head are opposed to God, even though there's all kinds of influences in this world of wickedness and darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness and all of that stuff, the things that I'm afraid of, even internally, even if it's just in my head, those things opposed to God will bring praise to Him when He executes judgment upon them in the last day. Because you know what's going to happen? We're going to say, Yes! I knew He would! I knew He would! He said He would! I knew He would deliver! I knew He would address that! I knew He would! Even when they're gnashing their teeth at Him in the very end, in the Revelation, in Revelation 16, verse 9, even the wrath of men against God gives him praise. Even those who are like sitting there crucifying Jesus and cheering along, you say, but listen, on the third day he rose from the grave. Even those, that praises God because their wrath could not defeat him. So how, what's the response? What's the response? This is, this is the end. Verse 11 and 12. What's the response? Make your vows to the Lord. That, that's the response. And perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him. Who is to be feared. Who cuts off the spirit of princes who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. What's he saying? Act like the Magi. That's what he's saying. Act like the Magi. Like you who are, wherever you are, bring your gifts to him. It's, and this is just like one of those moments where you say, what you offer back to God from what he has done for you is evidence of like what you think He's really done for you. If you think He's done much for you, you will offer gifts to Him. The more you think He's done for you, the greater the gift. If you say, I don't offer anything back to Him. See, they were, to, they were bringing their offerings to Him. You would say, well, it's not just talking about money. Well, it's not. Time, resources, talents. This last week, and uh, they've been reading a book on spiritual disciplines. It, it's all those things. It is all those things. It is not 
one of those things, it's all those things, to the extent that you think God is worth something, your worship will reflect what you think of Him. I think He's worth a lot. I am going to give back to Him. That is the natural reflection of a heart that says, God has made Himself known to me. He has delivered me. And I have watched Him do it. And I delight in seeing Him do it. And I want to delight in giving back to Him what He has given to me. Even though I know it's nothing in comparison all of my time, all of my money, all of my talents, if I were to offer them all of my life in every single moment, it would not compare. And some of you say, I don't give a lot of time, I don't give a lot of money, and I don't give my talents. And I say, you may be one who has never truly seen Him. You may be one that you think very little of the God who has delivered. You may think very little of the cross, but the reality is the cross tells us that Jesus entered this earth. He walked through all of the stuff that He did. He, He lived His life here. He gave Himself as a servant. He died on the cross. On the third day, He rose again from the grave, defeating sin, death, hell, Satan, all of your enemies. He was raised victorious. He sent His Spirit down to give you as a first fruit gift of all the salvation you have. And then He is going to return again. And everything in this world will be united to heaven and all will be glorious. And if you don't think much of that, it's probably shown in the way you live your life, in the way you spend your money, in the way that you use your talents. And that's a sad thing. If you've been offered the greatest gift, a little small offering of your life, is shouldn't even be something we have to discuss, right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercies, for the kindness you've shown us. May we be like the Magi who would travel a thousand miles on foot to give gifts to the king because of all he had done. May we be generous in our worship, generous towards the one who is worthy. In Christ's name, amen.